my heart is filled with passions. And what it says is, it says is, <laughs> do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You didn't know the gospel. You didn't know it's all its glories. And so it's always about money and small g glories and all its little flowering. And this is life, right? But instead, Peter says this strange thing. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's just stop for a moment. Um, if you don't believe in Jesus, and you don't consider yourself a religious person, I know this is already kind of a tough pill. <laughs> the way this message is already starting, you're like, holy, are you kidding? What is holiness? I have, like, zero interest in holy. And, in fact, that's exactly the kind of things, you know, people say they're holy, they're religious. You go to, like, institutional religion, and they're going around talking about this holy thing, and I don't even know what the heck it is, and isn't it just, just dumb, right? And um, I want to help you here. Um, I want to just say it's not dumb. It's incredibly relevant. Now, let's just chop down to verse, um, the next verse, verse 22 in this passage. And this is actually the verse I really want to sit on today. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That's just the first part of the verse. And that's really why I'm getting this first part of the sermon. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, the truth of the gospel. And now let me get to a definition. What does it mean to be holy? That means your soul is purified. That's what it means. Just giving you a definition there. That means your soul, it's not filled with dumb, junky lies and really garbage, misguided loves and passions. Instead, it's pure. It's, it's sensible. It's rational. The big and important things are big and glorious and beautiful. The stupid and junky things are stupid and junky. The things that are second and third and tenth, they, they're kept second, third, third and tenth. Here's let me say, so, say something else. It's a very simple definition. There's good in you and it's real. And it's not corrupted. It's not distracted. There isn't some garbage falsity in there. And so that when you give goodness to somebody else, or you're trying to give goodness to somebody else, you're not giving this other junk. So let me give you just an example. Um, there are people today, they hear a story, let's give money to this person because they're having a hard time. Or, you know, these people are poor. Let's give money to them. And so it may have been, maybe you did it too. Like you heard about Russia attacked Ukraine. And so the Ukrainians are being oppressed by the Russians. Let's help them. And lots of Americans gave money. And it's generally the objective measure is a good thing, okay? So the actual objective act is a good thing. Well, let me just tell you something about as a pastor that often thinks about holiness, here's what I think. I don't know what percentage of the people did it to really love the Ukrainians. There's often a lot of us, we hear this little piece of news, we get this little immediate little feeling of like compassion, and then we do a little piece of goodness, and you know what it's really about? 
It's about making myself feel good about myself. <laughs> you, you ever do that? I've done that lots of times. Or I do something good for somebody else, but really, inside, it's not pure. <laughs> it's really about me. <laughs> it's about me. And if you walk through life, it's completely normal, totally and completely normal. And you know what that just basically means? Life is utterly unholy. It's like this. We're filled with passions, and we walk through life, lots of unholiness. And so now, let's, um, let me get back to, if you don't believe in Jesus, and you don't think holiness matters, there's this phrase that I've been listening to um, young people say, and it, it goes something like this. I'm looking for something authentic. Authentic. I'm looking for something real. Well, sometimes that's just the way they put it. I just want something real. Or that, sometimes the other word is genuine. Authentic. Real. Genuine. I, I, you know, for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, I've been listening to millennials say this. And now, you know, you know the next gen is starting to say this. And so let me offer this to you, millennials, especially if you don't think that this Jesus and the Bible stuff is relevant. You know all you're asking for? You're just asking for holiness. That's what you're asking for. You want the people around you to be good. And you want that good to be real. And you want it to be pure. So when they say they care about you, you go, you go down layers. It's not about them. They actually mean it. They mean it when they say it. They mean it when they think it. And in their heart, when you go down, it's pure. And when the Bible calls you as God is pure, brothers and sisters, revive church. Everybody knows that so many Christians are a bunch of hypocritical losers. Okay, let me tell you, as a pastor, <laughs> I know it better than the non-Christians. I pastored Christians for many, many years, and I don't mean to be like, I'm not trying to insult anybody in this room, so don't get all you know, offended, okay? It's completely normal that we Christians, we, and I include myself, we're a bunch of unholy, hypocritical losers. We have a big God with a great set of promises and great message. And we go out into the world, and we give people this dual experience. There's this great thing called the gospel. You are wicked and sinful, and yet Jesus will love you wholly by grace, even though you don't deserve it. That's absolutely incredible message, isn't it? And we believe in it. But then we go out into the world, and what we care about is money, money, money. <laughs> My kids' grades. I care about my skinniness. I care about how I look on social media. I care about my brand, whatever the heck it is. And we want it to flower. And if that's the way we're going to live our life, of course our friends, our neighbors who live in the city are going to be like, what the heck do you got? This Jesus stuff, is a, isn't it just a, some dumb fairy tale? It doesn't make your life all that interesting. You're just as weak as broken and greedy and fake and phony like me, okay? So brothers and sisters, first off, I, I know it's heavy, but 
I want to just lay this life down. It's, it's a huge, big thing. We must become holy. And the gift of the gospel is that there is a way. And it's from him, through Jesus Christ. He has purified us with the gospel. One of the first things I want to say this is, you know why you should come to church every single, every single Sunday? It's so that you hear the gospel and the gospel will purify you and help make you real, authentic, genuine. Don't you want that? I do. So that we can cast off this fake, hypocritical phoniness. I want to be real. Brothers and sisters, please join me. Let's be repentant. Let's be humble. Let's let our friends know. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but that doesn't mean I'm all cleaned up. It actually means I'm cruddy, but there is a God who shed his blood to wash us so we could be real. Okay? Let's go to part two. Okay, let's go to part two. And here is the full verse, okay? Here's the full verse. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So obedience, please don't think of it as primarily like, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. Here, obedience means you put your whole soul under the truth. You let your, the truth wash over you. That's what the obedience is. Of course, we're going to wake up tomorrow and let our passions beat us sometimes, you know. I'm a professional Christian. Without even trying, I mean, it's so easy. I woke up this morning, and my passion won, and it's over something really idiotic, fantasy football, right? And then I said, okay, wait a second, let's be better than this, right? So, then what? So verse 22, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So um, what is this for? What is the Christian life for? The Christian life is not, I have Jesus, and then I'll like make a million dollars, and I can actually own, own a house in San Jose. <laughs> and then I'll live a happy life, and then I'll have some salvation and forgiveness. You know, you know, that's a nice bonus, right? That's not what the Christian life is for. The Christian life is for, brother, I have financial success and earthly glories. I'll have the glory of God <laughs> forever. And in the midst of this, what is the fundamental like core activity? It is this thing, a sincere brotherly love. It's sincere Philadelphia. So I want to just, just, let's just sit on this just for a sec. Um, brotherly love. We know this thing and is a totally incomplete, dead, and worthless cliche in America. We all know we're supposed to have brotherly love. We actually have the city I lived in this city. It's one of my favorite cities. I have to, I have to be honest with you. I, I just thinking I'm going to use this word Philadelphia throughout this sermon. And I lived in Philadelphia. It, it, let me tell you, that city is not a city of brotherly love, right? It's more like a, a city of brotherly anger, okay? 
Um, but hey, if you're from Philadelphia, I love you, and I love Philadelphia, okay? Um, I really do. Um, but Philadelphia should be in every church. And um, I'll just start this way. Um, I, I, you know, I spent some time away from you during this pandemic. I mean, I mean, not during the pandemic, during the sabbatical. And because of the pandemic, I went to a lot of churches in, when we were you know, overseas in Korea. And to be honest with you, it wasn't a great experience more week, more often than not. Because in the churches, there's, okay, I'm not trying to get down in Koreans, but they're really masked up. And the churches feel pretty lonely. And if you're new inside the church, it's not very loving, quite frankly. Right? And I went to a lot of churches, and it was hard. It was really hard. And I love Jesus, and I love church, and I love going to church. And I wake up on Sunday, excited it is Sunday. This is the day when my, you know, hurting heart, when my weak heart would be filled up with the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And this thing, which is my birthright, because I'm born again in Jesus Christ, it is my birthright to receive the family love of God from my brothers and sisters. It's my birthright. On Sunday, I wake up. If I walked around like a slave and I thought about my performance and people like judged me for my whatever it is, for my looks, <laughs> for how smart I am or how dumb I am or whatever it is, on Sunday, I get treated like a brother in Christ. And I get to go to my family. And almost a lot of the Sundays, I, I didn't receive it. It was hard. The first things I want to say to you is, you need Philadelphia. <laughs> Don't be some lonely, sad sack, performance-driven, Silicon Valley slave. Walk around the city. Everybody else gets a verdict on you. You're not making enough money. You're not performing well enough. You have a resume. Whatever, okay? All that junk, which just consumes us. And your worth is built on your money and your performance. So come to church and receive the love of your family from God. And here's the next thing I want to say to you, brothers and sisters. We have to give this to each other. You need it. I need it. I do not come to church primarily because I'm the pastor. Okay? I come to church because I need this. I could not wait to come home. And you did not disappoint last Sunday. <laughs> it was great. It was really great. Okay? So, and I want you to say this other thing. Um, brotherly love is this. You treat someone else like your brother or your sister. If my brother... Something bad happened to him in his life. I'm talking about my, you know, my actual, you know, like my blood brother. <laughs> I'd show up. If I didn't get enough sleep, <laughs> if I had too much work, if I had like a really good TV show <laughs> to watch, <laughs> if my fantasy football draft was conflicting, all that would go by the wayside because my brother needs me. 
That's brotherly love. Brotherly love is not, I got a good feeling, I like this guy. Brotherly love is like, look, man, we got a lot in common. I want to hang out with this person. Brotherly love is, man, he's really annoying. Sometimes I wish he wasn't my brother. <laughs> Darn it, I can't believe he has this problem. It's so inconvenient. And it's going to mess, it's like getting away with my career. I'm not going to show up. That's brotherly love. I want to say this to you. You know why the Bible commands brotherly love? When you and I, if you were born again in Jesus Christ, and you and I are in glory in our resurrected bodies, in the new heavens and new earth, forever and ever, there's no more sin, there's no more fake Christian churchianity, fake phony Christian hypocrisy, or any other kind of hypocrisy for that matter, and everybody is pure. Even the person who was the junkiest, dumbest Christian that you ever knew, that's like, so just remember that. You go to church, there's a Christian at church, the dumbest, junkiest Christian, you just don't even want to be around this person, right? And in the future, that person's going to give you pure, holy love. Because what we're going to practice forever and forever, we will never stop doing brotherly love. It is the eternal activity of heaven. In the church, this is what we do. In our lives, as the church, I'm not talking about the church inside this building. Whenever we get together in the name of Jesus, this is what we do. It is glorious. It is more precious than money. It's better than all the other glories. And if you spend time and your energy and your effort and your sacrifice doing Philadelphia, you're doing it from Christ, for Christ, in Christ. Oh, you are now walking in eternity. You are doing something that will never not matter. <laughs> it will never be forgotten by Jesus. Okay? Now, I want to um, share with you something. We all know that what I'm asking and calling for you is hard. In the world, people think that love is like, well, I'm, I'm lovely, I'm a good person, but and that's because they have this really junky, shallow understanding of love. The world thinks love is primarily a feeling. I have the good feelings for you, therefore I love you. I don't have feelings for you, therefore I don't love you. Hey, baby, you know, I used to love you, but I don't got the feelings anymore, <laughs> therefore I don't love you. I mean, it's, it's, it's awful, okay? That's worldly, secular love. Or maybe it's something like, um, I have good intentions for you. I got feelings, I got intentions, therefore I have love. That is not real love. <laughs> Actually, the real test of brotherly love is just exactly what I told you. <laughs> when it kind of stinks. It's really, like, it requires some kind of sacrifice. It's really, really... Um, you know, inconvenient. And actually, you're really loving somebody the most when you don't feel it. <laughs> you don't feel it. You know, my wife, you know, she would wake up in the middle of the night to feed Hudson. And then I woke up in the middle of the night to feed Hudson. 
And then Laura was born. And then she says, you don't have to do it. I'll just do it. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> you think my wife liked waking up in the middle of the night two or three times to feed Laura? Oh, I just feel it, little girl, baby girl. <laughs> she didn't feel it. So she did it. That's real love, right? Now I want to um, share with you uh, something I read which really moved me, and uh, I hope it'll help you too, okay? Um, I'm going to read a chunk of a really superb essay that came out not long ago, and uh, it was written by a guy named Jonathan Charks, and the name of the essay is Does My Son Know You? It's up there. There you go. That's what he looks like. Jonathan Charks. Let me say a little quickly some things about him so you get a little background on him. Jonathan Charks is one of my favorite basketball writers. Okay? So when I'm fixated on the little, you know, the flower of glory of basketball, I read Jonathan Charks because he helps me to understand when the flower is, you know, like gonna, you know, bloom. Because he's, I think, one of the best basketball writers, period. Okay? And he wrote for uh, one of my favorite sports websites called The Ringer. And um, as you can see, there are these dates because a week ago he died. <laughs> he was 34 years old, and he died of an extremely rare form of cancer. So rare, uh, I think one of the doctors he knows said, how does it feel to be hit by lightning? <laughs> That's how unbelievably rare it is. And, um, but a couple other things about Jonathan Sharks. He is a Christian. And he did not grow up in the church. He didn't know Jesus, totally secular, and pretty much he thought science explains everything, you know, like Christians are like nice people, but they believe in fair, you know, the, the, the whole nine yards, all that stuff, right? And um, until he was in his mid-20s, he had like one Christian friend who was invited him over for dinner. He thought they were actually really compelling people. He said, Man, they're, they seem kind of like ordinary people, and their lifestyle is completely different. My, I get drunk and do drugs <laughs> and party. This guy on the weekend actually helps people. <laughs> and I wish I could be more like that, but I don't believe any of that dumb junk called Christianity. That's, that was his thought. Until um, he did ecstasy at a concert, and while he was on this drug trip, he had this crazy spiritual encounter, and it wasn't with God. It was with something demonic. And he realized that after he came out of this drug trip, he looked at all the world, and he realized, the way he puts it, it's like, I, I kind of realized I'm living inside the matrix. And the world, the way it is lived, is kind of like a fake, stupid world. And the demonic encounter was something like very, very real and I better go find God. And that's how he ended up going to church and becoming a Christian. Okay, that's the background on him. So, he's married. He's got a two-year-old son. His name is Jackson. His wife's name is Melissa. She's a wonderful Christian woman. And um, I've read some of her stuff, too. She's a really good writer. Okay, that's the setup. Here's a chunk out of Does My Son Know You by Jonathan Charks. My dad was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease when I was six. Most people know Parkinson's from Muhammad Ali or Michael J. Fox and the shaking they see. But that's only the beginning. 
Parkinson's gradually robs you of your ability to control your body. My dad went from needing a cane to walk to a back brace and then a walker and finally a wheelchair. Things really went south after he had open heart surgery. His body never recovered. He had to take so much medicine that it became hard to talk. He was there, but he was no longer really there. I was 12. That's the age when your parents go from authority figures to actual people. That never happened for me and my dad. We never got to know one another. He used to go to the tennis club all the time before he got sick. It's where he made most of his friends. Everyone was supportive at first. They brought us food, drove him places, and got him in and out of the car, but those visits slowly dried up over time. My dad kept getting sicker and sicker and could no longer do the things that had made them friends in the first place. Let's just stop for a moment there. You know why we're friends with most people? Because we get something out of them. And when they can't give you that thing, that you get from them, we kind of basically stop being friends with them. That is how we do friendship. And I don't mean to be mean about that, because that's how we are, but that's unholy. <laughs> it's maybe not the most ugly, horrible, sinful thing in the world, but it's totally normal. See? People moved or had kids or got busy at work. Even the Christmas card stopped coming. By the end, the only people who stopped by the house were nurses and healthcare workers. In other words, people who were paid to come. It's about money, see? My dad died when I was 21. There were a bunch of people at his funeral whom I hadn't seen in years. They all told me how sorry they were and asked whether there was anything they could do. All I could think was, I don't know any of you. I know of you, but I've heard of your names, but I don't know you. I don't actually know you. And he goes on to say this. It's a very interesting observation about our culture. The lie that society tells us is that our friends can be our family. That's the premise of TV shows like Friends or Seinfeld or How I Met Your Mother. We can all leave our hometowns behind, have exciting adventures in the big cities with people that we meet, and those people will love us and take care of us and be there for us. But life is more like what happened in the actual actors on Friends. Their TV reunion was the first time all six had been together in years. They still cared about each other to a certain degree, but they had grown apart. And we all know what that's like. Americans tend to put our careers first and move around the country. That's what our parents did. That's what my parents did. My dad was from Nebraska. My mom was from the Philippines. I grew up in Dallas. That's a long way from their families. Although one of my mom's sisters ended up moving here. My parents tried to form a community where they had lived, but they didn't really have one. Not one that lasted. 
So just stop for a moment. If you are not in a church and you're not committed to your church, you're just like this. <laughs> and if you don't know Jesus, you're not God. And you go into another city, do you think you're going to do well at forming a community? I mean, are you going to have Ross Geller? <laughs> and he could be your best buddy for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years? Probably not. That's the norm of American life. It's very lonely. And then when the bottom drops out, you'll find out how little community we really, really have. Right? Then he shifts gears. And this part blew me away. Okay, listen to this. I was nervous the first time I went to a life group. You guys know what he's talking about? He's talking about a small group in church. I joined the church the week before, and one of the pastors, a guy a few years older than me, invited me. It was a smaller group of people who met at his house every week. I remember walking up to the door not knowing what to expect on the other side. There were about a dozen people in the living room talking to each other. I didn't know any of them besides the pastor, and I barely knew him. I didn't know what to do, so I did what most people would do. I headed over to the table with snacks. Okay, you ever do that? that that's why we have food after service. <laughs> We're not doing that yet. Okay, for that, sorry. That's why we have food after service. So that after service is over, all the people just like Jonathan, who don't know what to do, can hold a cup of coffee in their hand and not feel dumb. Isn't that exactly what you and I do? I've done it. One of the things I want to say to you, Revive, is anytime, if you feel this way at church, please don't feel sorry for yourself and go, oh, I hope somebody loves me. Just look around the room and love them. <laughs> they feel exactly like that. So love them. And you know what? They don't know if you've been here like since the beginning or if you just showed up last week. It's okay, all right? Eventually, the chatter died down, and everyone sat in a circle in the living room. They all introduced themselves with an icebreaker, something about their favorite TV show, their favorite snack. I was thinking, either I'm supposed to say I'm an alcoholic, or this is a cult. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> this is how people experience church. If you did not go up in church, you probably could relate, okay? Just understand this. Your friends who did not grow up in church they think we're a completely weird bunch of freaks. <laughs> so just everybody just calm down and be normal, okay? <laughs> and just know to love them genuinely from the heart, it goes a long, long way. <laughs> a long, long way. Because they're not used to being loved. They're lonely. They don't have friends. They don't have any community, okay? <laughs> they think we're weird. So don't be weird. <laughs> just love them, and they'll be like, okay. I'm, sometimes we're just going to be Christians, and it's going to seem weird, just like, he, like he's saying here. But sometimes they need Jesus so desperately, they'll stick it out through the weirdness. Okay? Here we go. Nothing exciting happened that day. Right? They sang a few songs. They talked about the Bible for a while. And at the end of the meeting, everyone paired off to pray for each other, and the pastor asked me, what I thought of the group. Then he asked if I would come back. I said, uh, 
uh, I guess, <laughs> but I wasn't sure. That was seven years ago. Some of those strangers from the house that first night are now some of my closest friends. It didn't happen overnight. It took me a while, a long while, to feel comfortable. I usually came after the life group had already started and left as soon as it was over. Just like some of you do church, <laughs> except they do it for life group. So if any of you come to church late, I do not judge you. <laughs> I just love you, okay? And um, if you're uncomfortable and nervous when you go to GLF, if you're going, I don't even know if I want to go. Oh, man, it's uncomfortable. Please just go and let somebody love you with Philadelphia from God. He said, um, I was starting to see the same people every week, and I was telling them about my problems, and they were telling me theirs. Do that for long enough, and you become friends. You get to know enough people that way, and life group goes from becoming an obligation to something you look forward to. Making the commitment to come every week, it's still hard. See, I love, this guy's so honest. <laughs> so I love him, right? There are always other things to do. Sometimes you're tired or you had a long day or you just don't feel like it. <laughs> it gets even harder once you get married and have kids. Absolutely. Brothers and sisters, if you have a baby and stop going to GLF, okay, I just, I say this with absolute love, you're dumb, okay? <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. It's hard. It's hard. Pack up the diapers. Stop being worried if your kids start screaming. I've literally sat in small group. <laughs> I sat and played poker with my brothers in my small group. And Elizabeth cried for 90 minutes straight. <laughs> for 90 minutes straight. <laughs> right into my ear. Right into my ear. And I just said, I'm sorry, dudes. I'm sorry, dudes. Should I, maybe, maybe I should go. And they were like, hey, you know what they said? I don't hear anything. You hear anything? You hear anything? You hear, you hear anything? I don't hear anything. <laughs> I don't hear anything. <laughs> I don't hear anything. And I just went, hey, everybody, don't tell Grace. Because <laughs> now she knows, right? Actually, I told her myself, and she just looked at me like, ugh. <laughs> you think Elizabeth was harmed by that night? She didn't look harm, harmed to me. <laughs> if anything... She got the love of all my brothers. She got brotherly love, Philadelphia, on the night I played poker when my wife was out of town attending to her mom who also was dying of cancer. See? So, wow. Uh, the people aren't always to deal with, of course, because, you know, you show up at GLF and everybody's going to be holy and wonderful, right? Wrong. They're just like you. <laughs> They're just like you. You just don't know when you're going to be dumb. So tomorrow, next week, you're wonderful and holy, but next week they will be dumb just like you, okay? And we love them with Philadelphia. Okay? You may not have a lot in common. You have to search for things to talk about. You can be 
vulnerable with people, and they don't always respond of how you would like to expect. I know that part really stinks, right? <laughs> you tell them something that's hard going on in your life, and the way they respond is like, oh, man, that was really crappy. <laughs> but Jesus is there. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is there. Can you be purified in your mind your heart by that piece of faith? which is more precious than gold. And stick it out and do the Philadelphia, the stuff of heaven. He goes on. The past two years haven't been easy. Our life group met over Zoom for a while. People ask me whether I have to be more careful because of my condition and the pandemic. In other words, maybe that's why you don't, you're not going to show up you know, when they get back in person, maybe you're going to be careful and you're not going to show up. This is really interesting what he said. But it's really the opposite. I don't have the luxury of waiting for life to get back to normal. This might be the only time that I have to get Philadelphia. <laughs> so he shows up. I can't imagine not being in a life group at this point. Human beings aren't supposed to go through life as faces in a crowd, right? It's like the song from Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. How about this? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your marriage is not doing well and your mother-in-law is dying of cancer. And I just need all my brothers to put up with my daughter screaming for 90 minutes straight while I take their money. <laughs> They were terrible at poker. That was another good reason to stay, right? <laughs> Life group is a kind of insurance. People talk about medical insurance and life insurance when you get sick, but relational insurance is far more important. I didn't need my dad's money, but I could have used some of my dad's friends. Do you know where you can get relational insurance? Church. If the church is any good and has the gospel with people who believe in the gospel, it is more precious than gold. All right. I gotta get to, let me get to the end here. Um, I'll just cut to this part. I don't want Jackson, this is his son, to have the same childhood that I, I did. I want him to wonder why his dad's friends always come over and shoot hoops with him. Why they always invite him to their houses? Why there are so many of them at his games? I hope he gets sick of them. One thing I have learned from this experience is that you can't care, worry about things that you can't control. You can't control if you're going to be rich tomorrow or if interest rates go up, down, or up, or the inflation's going to eat up. You can't control that stuff, okay? You can't control if the other person in your work group is going to stab you in the back and you're going to get screwed out of that promotion. You can't control that. You can't control if your job is going to get shipped off to India in like five years. You can't control that. So don't worry about it, okay? Focus on the things that are important, like Philadelphia. I can't control what will happen to me, including like dying from cancer. <laughs> I don't know how long I'll be there for my son. All I can do is make sure the most of the time that I have left, I can make the most of the time I have left. 
That means investing in other people so that they can be there for him. When Jonathan Charks was dying of cancer, you know what he chose with his time? He chose Philadelphia. <laughs> He's a wise man. Now let me close. I haven't actually given you the gospel. I've given you wisdom. From a man who's wiser than me and who got his wisdom honestly a pretty hard way. Right? Let me close this way. Let me give you the gospel. Because this is the glory that will last forever and ever. And I give you the power. You and I are such weak sauce. We're filled with dumb passions. We have good intentions. We have good feelings. You even have a good feeling right now. <laughs> I gave you this sermon so I can give you the feeling of like, oh, yes, I want to live like this. You have that feeling, but tomorrow that feeling is going to pass. <laughs> but you need more than a feeling. You need more than good intentions. You need a Philadelphia, not just from your brothers and sisters, and you need not just some good words from your pastor. You need the gospel. <laughs> So let's close this way. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's verse 22. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Let me close this way. You and I, you're like, don't please don't think about Jonathan and Jackson like somebody else. You know, when I told you this last week, I told you this story. You know, we're, we're not unlike that boy, that girl dying of kidney failure. Today, you are Jackson, you are Jonathan. We're both like Jonathan, we're both like Jackson. Here's how we're like Jonathan. We're really good at being living in distraction and letting the demonic steal away what's important. And if it weren't for the grace of God, we wouldn't have woken up. So passions rule us, and that's what we're good at. And we're always looking at the little flower that's not really going to be worth much when it dies tomorrow. We're also like Jackson. Jackson's now fatherless. Right? And you may have a father in this world, and maybe he was even good. But somehow, in the 21st century, we want to be orphans. I don't need a God. I don't need a father. I don't need church. I don't need GLF, small group. I don't need all that institutional religion. They're just trying to take my money. <laughs> That's all orphan talk. Fatherless people who just think, I just need me. It's orphan talk. But actually, the truth is there is a word. And it's more than a word. It is a living word. This living word is an abiding word. That's what it says. It is imperishable. It is alive and is abiding. And that living word is more than a bunch of words. It's more than a message from your pastor. 
It is Jesus himself. <laughs> so let me close this way. The gospel is an everlasting word, which is more than a word. It is a person. And he is your brother. And he came to give you everlasting Philadelphia. Whatever it would take, however inconvenient you are, however terrible you are, however addicted you are, however hateful you are, however depressed you are, however greedy you are, however dying you are, he came to give you Philadelphia. He would pay any price, and he will abide with you. See, last week I told you he gave you more than his kidney. He gave you his blood. That blood is the only blood that can wash you of the cancer of your sin. And only that brother could release you from the cancer of your death, my death. But only this brother will abide. <laughs> and he will give you the Philadelphia of heaven. You and I walk through life. Do not be an orphan. Do you know what Jesus died for? So that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can abide in you forever, <laughs> never to leave you. If you think you're some dumb person because I talked to my invisible friend, Jesus, <laughs> talk to your invisible friend, Jesus. If you talk to your invisible friend, Jesus, I assure you, by the Holy Spirit, he is there. He abides with you. If your day is good, if your day is bad, he brings you all the fullness of Philadelphia. And even when your church fails you, and we, I'm sure will, the true older brother will never fail you. And Philadelphia is yours to abide in you and with you forever. Heaven is yours, always with you. And if you and I can remember that, then there'll be a Jackson, and there'll be a Jonathan. And in our church, I hope you can remember his just being Jonathan today. And next week, I'll be Jonathan. He's being Jackson today. And maybe next year, my son will be Jackson. And with the love of the Philadelphia from the brother who is Jesus, Wake up, cast off your passions, and let's love each other, okay? Let's pray. To a terrible and unholy people, we think we have the whole life before us. Unfortunately, Jonathan Sharks found out that life is very short. And actually, life could be a hundred years, and we don't find out probably until it's too late that we waste it with our passions. We will not live inside of the eternal birthright of heaven, the Philadelphia of God from Jesus. We thank you, Lord that for a terrible, unholy, shallow people. And our righteousness is really 
pretty darn junky because it's always corrupted with me. Thank you that Jesus shed his most precious blood to wash us of our terrible unrighteousness and of our weak thoughts, feelings, and good intentions. So he would give us something holy and authentic and real. And thank you, Lord. I know that if I wasn't from a Christian family, <laughs> I was probably a natural-born atheist, and I would have probably used all my intellectual powers to pour scorn and hatred and insult on the name of Jesus, just like so many people do today. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave me a family where I can experience Philadelphia. You gave me churches where I can experience Philadelphia. And though I am damnable, you have loved me. And I often think, I can't believe I'm a pastor. <laughs> so thank you that I get to wake up every day and I get to practice Philadelphia and call on my family to love one another. I'm so grateful that they love me. Thank you that they love me. Though I am a very unholy man, and I'm so grateful to come home to be with my family. Every GLF, every LOLMD, even when we're just being dumb dudes playing poker, <laughs> would you fill it with real, genuine Philadelphia from you, Lord Jesus? And we pray that the Jonathan Charks of this city would step into our church. They may be uncomfortable. They may think that we're a bunch of weird freaks. <laughs> Help us love them and to meet you, the Holy One from God, our brother, Jesus, who has loved us with a holy and abiding, imperishable love. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.